main text for the message this morning is Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, Ryan will come up and read that for us. Isaiah 54 is really just responding to the text that we looked at last week of Isaiah 53, which talks about the servant who will bear our iniquities. And so Isaiah 54 is basically telling us how wonderful life must now be because our iniquities have all been carried away by the servant. And so we get to hear the many things that we have to rejoice in because of the work of Christ. So after Ryan reads that, we have three other texts that talk about some of these benefits, some of the good things that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Elisa will come and read for us from Ephesians 2, 13 to 19. Kathy will read for us from Romans 8, 35 to 39. And then Don will read for us from 1 John 3, verse 1. And again, just be listening to how much we have to be thankful for because of the work of Christ Jesus. So... Ryan, you can go ahead and come forward now. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 17. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For Yahweh has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, 
and their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 19. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Romans 8, uh, verse 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in Christ, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ the Lord. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Well, last week we saw in Isaiah 53 that Isaiah covered the simple gospel message, the message that God has punished another in our place. And so in our passage this morning, Isaiah is picking up on this same idea, and he's talking about the impact that this message is supposed to have in our hearts and upon our world. So first, just to review the gospel message from last week, the gospel message is essentially this. That though you and I deserved God's punishment, and though we were dead to rights against the creator of the universe, God nevertheless sent his son into the world, who is God in the flesh, to bear the punishment that your sins deserved and that my sins deserved by dying upon a cross. And that we can now be included in this great saving work by believing that Jesus' death can be our death and that his resurrection from the dead can be our resurrection from the dead. And so it is by faith that our sins are punished and that we are given new life in Jesus Christ. Now this is a very short statement and maybe this is familiar to everyone here this morning, but in that statement, in that gospel message is a world-turning-upside-down kind of truth. If our heads and our hearts can really get wrapped around what I just said, then it cannot help but change our lives forever. 
and to fill our hearts with an otherworldly joy and hope and peace. Indeed, beloved, the whole of the Christian life can be summarized as coming to understand the gospel, coming to appreciate the gospel, or as the fight to believe the gospel. Even I myself cannot fully understand the depths of the gospel here and now because I cannot fully comprehend the depths of sin, how exceedingly evil it is, how terrible it is. And on the other hand, I cannot fully comprehend how glorious and perfect and good God is. And therefore, often that exchange made upon the cross, where what is perfectly holy and perfectly good became perfectly evil and wretched, it can seem like a very small thing to me because I don't see how big that gap is. And yet, as I grow in the Christian faith and I grow in my comprehension of how good and glorious God is on the one hand and how terrible and evil sin is on the other hand, the cross grows larger and larger for me and I grow more and more appreciative. I grow to understand more and more just what Christ did when he died upon that cross. And I think more and more, how could this be? that the perfect and holy one would become sin for me. It seems all the more unfathomable the more that I understand it. And so I believe that for the rest of my life, indeed for all eternity, I will be exploring the depths of this love that would make something perfect and holy to be something ugly and odious for me. I can't fully comprehend it with my brain right now, but I do believe that one day when my body is raised up from the dead and I have a whole transformed mind, transformed body, that I will be able better than ever to understand the glories of the cross and the glories of what Jesus did for me. And so our passage this morning is like Isaiah is taking us by the shoulders and telling us, if you really understood the gospel message, then this is how you would feel. Then this is how you would rejoice. This is how you would see the world. If you really understood what I just wrote in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, then you would respond in the way that I am describing in this chapter. Because all that chapter 54 is doing is spelling out some of the glorious, incredible implications of Jesus dying for us, of the servant bearing our sin upon the cross. How wonderful it is now that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But before I jump into these implications mentioned in Isaiah 54, I think it'd be helpful to be clear about how God designed these implications or this hope of the gospel to play out over the course of our lives. One of the things that the death and resurrection of Jesus made possible on the earth is for us to experience a future hope and a future joy right now. So all the joy, all the peace, all the love, all the good things that we taste right now as Christians are actually just a foretaste of the life to come. The ultimate rewards that Jesus has purchased for us, we will not fully know until the new heavens and new earth. After Jesus has returned and judged the world and he's raised the dead and we are welcomed into this new creation 
Only then will we fully realize all that Jesus died to win us. But part of the message of the gospel says that we don't have to wait until we die and are raised. We don't have to wait until Jesus returns, whenever that happens, in order to experience some of the joys that Jesus has purchased for us. That we can start to know eternal life right now, today. We can start to know something of heaven on earth right now. Just listen to the words of 1 John 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as, we is, as he is. And so John says that we are God's children now. That is a present reality that we get to experience today, that we know we are God's children But then as soon as he says that, he actually says, what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's an even greater reality of our sonship that we can't experience yet that is coming for us in the future, in the new creation. And then right after that, John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Well, beloved, we also know it's a truth that we can be like him right now. Romans 8.29 says that we are to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's, that's what's happening to us right now. God is shaping us to look like Jesus Christ. And yet, we won't fully be like Him until He appears. And then we see Him. And then we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, John says. And so, in that way, you can see how we have kind of a down payment right now. All these wonderful things we get to experience of an incredible future hope that we are still waiting for. And so the Christian always has two ways of speaking. One way of speaking is about the joy that we get to experience here and now in knowing Jesus Christ. And yet with that joy, there is always mixed this sadness because we know that we aren't there yet. We aren't at Jesus' side yet. We aren't at that wedding supper of the Lamb yet. And so our other way of speaking is to speak in hope of the future that is yet to be revealed to us. And so as we look at these many benefits of the gospel, understand that all of these things can be experienced here and now. And yet they're experienced here and now only in part because we are waiting to see in full. And so even for all the joy that we may experience in Jesus right now, We know that there is a hundred times more joy coming down the road if we hold fast to Him. And so the call of this passage this morning is the same for both Christians and non-Christians. If you are a Christian, then you are to believe, you are to lay hold of by faith all these benefits that Isaiah 54 speaks of. You are to hear and you are to believe that this really is true about what, is God, what God is doing. And if you are a non-Christian, the call is the same. You are to hear what God has done in Jesus Christ, and you are to believe. Now, if you are a non-Christian, these benefits of the work of Christ are not yet yours. You have to first trust in Christ, but you can do that this morning. And if you find your heart this morning saying, yes, I believe that Jesus really has won all of these good things for me, well, that is God working in your heart to bring faith alive that you can believe his word. 
And so I pray that whether you are a non-Christian here this morning or whether you've been a Christian many years, your heart will be awakened to the truth of all that Jesus has accomplished. So let's look at these many glorious benefits now that are laid out in Isaiah 54. And the way that I'm going to approach this text is I'm just going to walk through it and I'm just going to pause every time Isaiah names some benefit that Christ has accomplished. And I want to explain how Christ has accomplished that benefit. And so in that way, we're just going to walk through the chapter of Isaiah 54. There are seven different specific benefits that I think Isaiah lists out here in Isaiah 54 to see some of the glorious things that Jesus Christ has accomplished by his death and resurrection. There's two main sections to this passage before us. In verses 1 to 10, Isaiah is speaking as if he's speaking to a, a barren woman or a divorced woman or a woman who has no children. In some ways, this image doesn't entirely hold together, but basically what Isaiah is trying to portray for us is he's trying to portray God speaking to someone who is to be pitied above all else. And in the context of Isaiah's time, a woman who was divorced or who had no children or who was widowed, that was kind of the saddest picture of all because children were seen as the greatest blessing of all. If you didn't have children, then you didn't have security for your future. You didn't have any joy in this life. And so Isaiah is picturing for us God speaking to a woman in that condition and basically, he's trying to say that all of us here are in that condition in some way. We are all pitiable in some way. None of us should be proud of our lives, should feel like we have it all together. We should all understand that apart from the grace of God, we are broken and messed up people. And so these words to this barren woman, this divorced woman, are words to all of us because all of us need the restoration and the hope of the gospel. So beginning in 54 verse 1, it says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now I know we have some women in this church who would like to be married and have children, but who are not. I know we have other women in this church who are married and would like to have more children, but they cannot. And again, in the ancient world especially, this was considered just kind of a devastating curse to, to not be able to have children. And yet in this verse, in Isaiah 54.1, these women, those who cannot have children, those who do not have a husband, are called to rejoice. And why are they called to rejoice? It says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. But how could that be? Beloved, did you know that in Christ we get a new family and we get the opportunity to have children beyond physical children? Did you know that the barren woman or the single woman can have more children in Christ Jesus than even the most fruitful married woman? As one example, the Apostle Paul, whenever he's talking about Timothy, who's a young man that the Apostle Paul led to the Lord, he often calls Timothy, my child. So 1 Corinthians 4, 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Or 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 
What this passage is telling us is that even if you cannot have children, even if you do not have a husband, you have no reason for despair in Jesus Christ because your children can be as numerous as the people that you share the gospel with and that come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can have an abundance of children. You can be part of a church family where you have brothers and sisters beyond any brothers or sisters that you may have biologically. You have no reason to be in despair or without hope because of the state of your biological family. Because in Jesus Christ, you get new children, you get a new family, you get new brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And the children that we have in Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the church are to be even more meaningful and more precious to us than our own biological children. We have biological children, but we don't know if those children, if their names are written in the Lamb's book of life or not. And yet when someone comes to the Lord who we have had the opportunity to nurture in the faith, to speak to about Jesus, then we know that they are someone who we get to be with forever and ever. And who we are bound to, not simply by blood, but we are bound to by Jesus Christ himself having one identity in him. And so there is no reason for despair or sadness. If you cannot be married, if you cannot have children, there is only reason for hope and joy now that because of Jesus Christ, the floodgates of family, the floodgates of mercy have been opened and anyone can come to Jesus Christ and be a member of the family of God. And so we rejoice, and even the barren woman rejoices and sings because of what Jesus Christ has done. The second benefit we see is Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. It says, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the left and to the right, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The blessing we see here is that those who follow God don't need to simply hunker down and batten the hatches because God's liberation is not for the righteous few, but is for anyone and everyone who would trust in Jesus and obey his commands. Beloved, Christ won a victory that is great enough and powerful enough to overthrow all of the forces of darkness. There is no sin so great that you could perform that Christ cannot overcome it. There is no power of evil in the world so great that Jesus Christ cannot defeat it. Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ's power is even now spreading across the entire earth and disciples are being made in all nations in the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved, are you someone who lives in dread about what tomorrow's headlines are going to hold? Are you someone who worries a great deal about what political party is going to control the White House or Congress? Do you worry about our culture being so far gone that it's unrecoverable? Well, beloved, if you are a Christian here this morning, you must not think that way. Isaiah 54 verse 2 says, Enlarge your tent. 
Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He is saying that my kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is the kingdom that is growing and that is increasing. It is the forces of hell that need to be worried, not the forces of Jesus Christ. He says, you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and and you will people the desolate cities. Beloved, we have nothing to fear in Jesus Christ. By his death and resurrection, he has conquered all the forces of darkness. And therefore, let's not worry about the headlines. Let's not worry about what's going on in Washington, D.C., Rather, let's hope in Jesus Christ and his great victory that he is accomplishing even now. The next promise we see is covered in verses 4 to 8 of Isaiah 54. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer." Beloved, the great promise given us here is that our past does not need to define us, that nothing about our past needs to define us. Not our family of origin, not our past sins, not the jobs that we have done or the skills we have acquired. Because the most basically true thing about you, if you are in Christ Jesus, is that you used to be separated and cut off from God, but now you are his beloved child. And what could be greater than that? Beloved, in Christ Jesus, there is no room for shame. There is no room for guilt. There is no room for anything from our past to define or to control us. Not some sin that we committed 10 years ago or a sin that we committed 10 minutes ago. Again, the the passage speaks as if God is speaking to some young divorced woman who perhaps feels like she's damaged goods or like no one really loves her. And what God is saying is he's saying that I love you, that you are not damaged goods, and that I, the God of the universe, have chosen you to be my bride. He's saying, why are you worried about the dirty things you used to engage in and the filth that you used to wallow in? Because now you are married to me, the pure and holy one, and I love you. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Beloved, are you Letting sins from your past define you and shame you? Are you letting sins that were done against you make you feel defiled or dirty? Of course, it's understandable that sins make us feel dirty, both the sins that we do and the sins that others do against us. But beloved, in Jesus Christ, God has chosen us 
as his spotless bride. And that is what you are in Jesus Christ. So don't look back. Don't let someone else define you more than God himself defines you. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, Ephesians 5. This is verses 25 to 32. I'm going to cut out a couple verses. But here, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And he goes on to define this relationship even more clearly. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Christ and you, beloved. Do you hear those words that you are sanctified in Christ? You are washed by the cleansing of water with the word. You are pure, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is who who God made you in Jesus Christ. This is what the blood of Christ does when it is applied to your life. It washes you perfectly clean. And this is why Isaiah says, you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. Beloved, do not let your past define you. Look to Jesus Christ, let his blood define you. See that you are a son of God in Jesus Christ, no less valuable to the Father than Jesus Christ himself. You are cherished by God. And therefore, you must not wallow in the sins of your past or be in shame or disgrace. The next verses that tell us about the benefits of the work of Christ Jesus are verses 9 and 10. It says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. And will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Love of the benefit mentioned in these verses is that we do not need to fear about the future anymore. Because God has sworn that he will not forsake the one who trusts in Jesus. You don't have to worry if God is going to love you tomorrow the way that you feel that he loves you today. You don't have to fear that God will love you in a million years the way that he loves you today. He will love you and he will love you forever. Now I know there is a lot of debate about the topic, the theological topic called perseverance of the saints. Do all Christians who are saved truly abide forever? But Scripture is very clear that those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ will never, ever be cast out. Again, look no further than Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. Now, of course, it's true that there is a danger to being deceived. 
to never really having been a Christian in the first place when you thought you were a Christian. And this is why Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 verse 10 to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So Peter is saying, yes, we must exhibit fruit in our lives if we want confidence that we truly are born again, that we truly are Christian. But beloved, if you're showing that fruit in your life and if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then be assured that God will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Jesus himself says in John 10, verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Beloved, we have nothing to fear if we are in Christ Jesus. God will secure us forever and ever. And it's a truth that's been spoken many times, but it is still just as true that our grip on God does not matter nearly as much as God's grip on us. We are not saved ultimately by the works that we do, by our goodness, by the fruit that we show. We are saved by the work of Christ. And it is God who applies the work of Christ to us. And so we can rest secure that if we have indeed trusted in Christ, that we will have life forever and we do not need to fear being cast out by God. And so these are the words that Isaiah has for this woman who feels rejected, who has no children, who is widowed, who is divorced, who just feels at the end of herself. Isaiah says, no, look, in Jesus Christ you have security. You are loved. You can have children more than sons and daughters. And so he gives great hope to anyone who feels that they have no reason for hope. And now Isaiah is going to switch metaphors for the remainder of the chapter for verses 11 to 17. The metaphor that he switches to is the metaphor of a city that seems to be destroyed, a city that is absolutely devastated. He is talking about people who have lost everything because their enemies have come against them and have wrecked their homes, have wrecked their places of employment. And they feel as if they have no more hope. Again, what is God going to say to a city of this nature? Because all of these things fit together so tightly, I'm just going to uh, read out this whole passage and then I want to tease out just a few things from these verses. And so Isaiah 54, 11 to 17. It says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. 
and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. The first thing we see about this city that's created in Christ Jesus is that the city is beautiful. Those are the words that we see in verses 11 and 12. All of the precious stones that are laid around the city. Your stone set in antinomy means that there will be this dark mortar between these white bricks so that the city will shine all the more brightly. Beloved, did you know that regardless of your outer appearance, in Jesus Christ you can have beauty that surpasses the greatest supermodels on earth? Because in Jesus Christ, we receive the inward beauty that he himself has. Peter speaks of this beauty in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Beloved, in Jesus Christ, you are made into a far more beautiful person, a far more beautiful city than any type of physical beauty that exists on this earth. And so in Jesus Christ, we even have this hope of beauty. The second thing that we see in this city is that it is a city full of righteousness and justice and peace. This is what verses 13 and 14 say to us. Beloved, did you realize that in Jesus Christ, you're not only offered individual salvation, a a personal peace with God, but in Jesus Christ, you are offered a community that is to be full of righteousness and justice? Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17 just paint a beautiful picture of what the community of God is supposed to be like, what the church is supposed to be like. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Beloved, do you hear some of the beautiful words in that passage that are supposed to characterize the church? Patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, putting on love, letting the word of Christ dwell in us together, singing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, doing everything in the name of Jesus, not just to impress one another. This is the sort of community that God desires to build in Jesus Christ. Beloved, in the church, are you helping to build a community where people can come in and they sense the righteousness and justice and peace of the place? 
Have you committed yourself to a church body where you can create this kind of city that God desires to create? God didn't save you just so you could have personal peace and personal relationship with God, but he saved you in order to build a whole new city, a city of justice and righteousness, a city of love and forgiveness. The city of God is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God that is being built on the earth is the church. And so, beloved, we in the church are to exemplify verses 13 and 14 and 15 that we read here, that righteousness be established in us, that no oppression is found in us, that there is no strife, no one who stirs up strife, because we are the kingdom of God. And in Jesus Christ, God has made this new community. The last thing we see that's true about this city is that this city is safe and secure. That's what verses 16 and 17 tells us. It says that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Beloved, this especially is one of those promises that we wait for in hope. Because Jesus Christ indeed promises us that we will experience persecution here and now. It will seem to us today as if weapons that are formed against us are prospering. And yet God promises us that even when we are persecuted, even when the wicked seem to rise, that we nevertheless are victors in Christ Jesus. That's what we read in Romans 8. Romans 8 verses 35 to 39, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just hear all the weapons that the Apostle Paul mentions there. Can any of these things come against us and ultimately defeat us? Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Indeed, the Apostle Paul is happy to acknowledge For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This doesn't sound like someone who has victory in Jesus Christ. And yet, listen to the words beginning in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are conquerors, beloved, through death and suffering. Because even in our death we prove that God himself is greater than life. And so it is by our faith, by our faith that endures suffering, that we demonstrate to the world that God really does have the victory. Beloved, do you ever fear what the future holds? Do you fear for your finances? Do you fear rising crime? Do you fear others rejecting you or putting you on the outside? Do you fear these things as if these things are some kind of weapon that could possibly prosper against you? As if these things are somehow things that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? 
Beloved, none of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. And if they cannot separate you from the love of Christ, then that means they cannot defeat you. They cannot prosper against you because it is by the love of Christ that we get to look forward to that new creation where every wrong will be made right, where there will be no more suffering or poverty anymore, where all the rewards that we have will be ours forever. And so we don't need to fear the future. Because God is able to preserve us and he is able to ensure that nothing is able to ultimately separate us from his love. Again, beloved, all of these things are only possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It was Jesus Christ himself who won all of these glorious benefits for us by dying on the cross and rising again and saying, if you only have faith in me, then all of these things can be yours. But beloved, apart from Jesus Christ, if you do not trust in him, there is no hope for the barren or for the unmarried. There is no hope when the world is falling apart. There is no hope for those with a dark past. There is no security in God's love. There is no beauty for the broken. There is no community of righteousness and justice. There is no ultimate safety or security. But beloved, in Jesus Christ, as we trust in him, as we come to see more and more of his glorious accomplishments on his cross, Then we find that the whole world is being made new and we have every reason to hope. We have every reason to expect victory in Christ Jesus and we can go about life just as this passage exhorts us to with great singing and rejoicing even in the midst of great suffering and sorrow. Both because we have God here and now and because we look forward to that great new creation that Jesus Christ is preparing for us even now. And so, beloved, I would like to go to the Lord in prayer right now to apply this passage to our hearts that we would have this kind of hope and also to pray for the great deal of brokenness around us. And so would you join me in prayers of confession and petition to God right now?